Katie then. <laughs> hey, everybody. You recognize that? That's from Ace Ventura. Jim fucking Carey. He's my hero growing up. Just absolutely. My uncle, my mother's brother, his name is Choppy. He's like a Jim Carrey impersonator, and he's just the funniest. And so I just grew up just every Jim Carrey movie a million times until I knew every word and all of the jokes. And, oh, I love that. And that's interesting because... I literally have used humor as a way to be accepted and to, uh, as a way to express myself and express my love and my care and express my, my personality and my enthusiasm, my joy, my thumos, my stoke. It's a love language I have. Humor. Levity. I know sometimes I talk about some really heavy shit on this podcast, but in general, I like to live my life in laughter. I laugh when I paraglide, I laugh when I highline. Just making jokes as much as I can, really. It feels great to live like that. Today, I want to... I want to talk about myself, my love... And my love for myself, which has recently seemed to turn some kind of corner. And this is going to be an episode that is like radically honest and probably a, just a gross TMI. <laughs> I feel myself, my future self cringing at this episode already, which is a great indication. It's a great indication. It's going to be good. So. Thanks for being here. PayPal.me slash airy in the air. Here we go. some things that I've realized in the last number of months as to how I've been showing up in my life, how I've been relating intimately that are changing for the better, but the path behind me is something that I'm glad is behind me and at the same time kind of makes me cringe. How do I say that? So, 
hopefully also I can synthesize the lessons that I've been learning in my own life into a way that is digestible so that you can at least consider them in regards to your own life. It will, I will do my best to keep it from sounding like gospel and let it be radically honest, which is something that I strive for as much as I possibly can. So, when I was 21, I got married. And I was married for nearly nine years to a Mexican woman. Her name is Cheetah. Cheetah is still a very close friend of mine, and our relationship has deepened in the last few years as we've rekindled our friendship and we still share our beautiful Great Dane. And Cheetah is someone that I feel like when I look back on our relationship that we grew up together. Uh, I know her family and she knows mine and I feel like Cheetah knows me as good as anyone. I have such a profound love for her and such a deep admiration and a gratitude for all of the love and support that she gave me. It was during our marriage that I became a professional skier, a professional highliner, a professional paraglider, traveled the world, made my dream jobs happen, learned to be a filmmaker, got all these awesome gigs to travel around and make these films, and yada, yada, yada. The list goes on. The ways in which she supported me to do these things is really long. Yet, Underneath all of that light, there is a certain shadow that girded my relationship and the way that I related and why I did, which is something that I have only recently seen in myself. And my recent breakup and the following new romances are the context in which I have seen the ways that I related in the past and how I can likely relate in a way that is healthier for me and everyone. If you've listened to this podcast for any time and scroll back just a little ways, you'll see an episode called, Am I Doing It Right? Do You Love Me? And that refers to this identity loop that goes on in us that's essentially from birth, where we are born as useless infants who, if we do not have the love of our mother, especially, and more broadly, our community, our family, if we do not have the love and care of these people, we literally die. And that is something that evolution has ingrained into us, into our psyches, into our emotional states, that is a powerful force for us to be connected to our families and our friends and each other and our partners. That is the light. And the shadow is that it manifests a deep fear of abandonment, a deep fear of needing to be accepted, a fear of being ostracized, and a fear of being ostracized that is so powerful that our 
minds experience that fear as existentially threatening, that literally if we are abandoned, we will die. And we experience that physically as such. If you've ever been in a, in a long, deep relationship and have your heart broken, you feel it like you're dying. No, it feels like you're fucking dying. It feels like your heart is being wrenched. Your guts are being turned inside out. You can't breathe. You can't function. So, to acknowledge the fact that for years I related from a place of fear of abandonment is something that I think I didn't look at for so long because I was ashamed of it that I didn't want to seem needy, that I didn't want to seem afraid because I'm brave and I'm courageous. But the reality is, is that I was scared as fuck of being alone, of being left, of being abandoned, of being by myself, humiliated, scared, lonely, afraid. But, once I contextualize my own experience in the history of humanity and understand that my brain has literally evolved from a place where fragile infants over eons have needed this pathway neurologically to keep them in relationship to their parents and their parents in relationship to them to carry on the existence of this species, well... Now I can have a bit more forgiveness for myself, a bit more sympathy. No wonder I was afraid of being abandoned. Every human who's ever lived has been afraid of being abandoned as an infant. And only through an incredible effort of parents, family, community, society, can that fear of abandonment be alleviated to the point that a person would feel so integrated into the fabric of the human web in which they exist that they would call, be able to calm their nervous systems and relinquish the fear that if they do not perform or relate, then they will die, that they will be abandoned. That's one of the purposes of parenting, as far as I can tell. It's one of the purposes of society, community, family. Is as children grow up, we can help them understand their context of their lives, their biology, how they have evolved, how their minds are structured, how their relationships are likely to be structured, how to contextualize these things, how to understand their fear of abandonment as it comes up, these are things that don't happen often, and they definitely didn't happen in my life. They definitely didn't happen in my life. I was the son of a driven parent. I had a driven father and a passive mother. This led me to feel like my worth, my value in life was based on what I did, not on what I was. It was based on what I built, what I earned, what I achieved. Not on just the fact that I was a 
beautiful human being worthy of all the love and acceptance. So. Hmm. This is something we have to grow in ourselves. This is a sympathy for our neurological pathways as they have evolved in humanity. That we are afraid of being abandoned. And if we're not afraid of being abandoned, it's because a thorough effort of our parents, society, community, upbringing, maybe our unique neurology. There are some people who are just less sensitive to that. There are people who don't feel negative emotion very much. The depth at which you experience negative emotion is a personality trait that is referred to as neuroticism. Neurotic is something that's thrown around a lot and often misunderstood, but it just refers to how profoundly you experience negative emotion. Women, in general, are much higher in neuroticism than men, and they experience abandonment and relational issues at a much deeper level than men do, which is the likely cause of the disparity between men and women of she's an emotional wreck and he's emotionally unavailable. There's a disparity there in how much we experience the same situations. But that's somewhat of a tangent here. There are things that I have experienced in my relationships that um, my future self will cringe at me sharing with you. But alas, here I go. There are ways when I look back at my marriage that I can see so clearly how I was operating out of fear of abandonment, that I didn't want to be left, that I didn't want to be abandoned, alone. Most of these stem from the misconception that other people's emotions have anything to do with me. I'll say that again. This is, comes from a misconception that other people's emotions have anything to do with me. In my marriage, I was married to a Mexican woman, Cheetah, and she was living in the United States with me. So, what's the most obvious thing that's going to come up for her? She misses her family, she misses her friends, she misses her culture, she misses her country. Those are her emotions, and they're quite reasonable in any objective sense. Quite reasonable. As a young man in my early 20s, I made the misconception that her emotional experience had something to do with me. That if she was sad, lonely, crying, it was because I was a bad husband, that our marriage was dysfunctional, and that I was um, that I was flawed, that I was mistaken, that I was 
blowing it. And so that misconception that her emotional states had something to do with me led me to behave in a way that was defensive. That was, if you're crying, then I'm bad and I have to defend myself to make sure that I'm not bad. Which, relationally, looked something like Cheetah would cry that she missed her family and I would take up arms and I would try to dismiss her claims that I would basically invalidate her experience that it was unreasonable for her to feel how she was feeling I would defend I would deflect I would do whatever I could to try to fix her because I had to fix her because her emotional states were tied to my sense of identity. And if her emotional states were negative, then that took my identity into a dark place. And I can't let that happen. I'm a good husband. I'm a good partner. I'm a good person. This can't, this shouldn't be happening. So I have to fix it. So I defend, deflect, dismiss, dismantle, whatever. Sometimes it was positive and I'd be like, okay, I'll buy you an airplane ticket. Sometimes it was negative and it was like, you just saw them a month ago. Mm, What a sad situation, right? And it's like, I have so much sympathy for myself and her in those times. It was years of this. It was years of this. And both of us just operating from... No, not both of us. Her experience was very reasonable. That she missed her family, that she missed her culture, that she missed her friends, that she didn't feel like she had purpose and drive and all these kinds of things. And and it was my own misconception of how that related to me that led me to dismantle the entire situation instead of validating her experience. Instead of validating it. Oh, I'm so sorry you miss your family. I would miss my family too. That must be so hard. Oh, that must be so hard. Validating her experience. Helping her feel it more deeply. Helping her feel it more deeply. Ooh, what is it that you miss? What is it that you miss? (sighs) Not trying to fix it. Not trying to fix it. Mm. My fear of abandonment got me abandoned. Let me elaborate here. Literally, this fear of abandonment that I had that kept me deflecting, defending, dismantling her emotional experience was the thing that became exhausting for her and exhausting for me and led to the end of our marriage. Isn't that fucking ironic? Isn't that ironic? (laughs) Okay. Ah! <sighs>
It's silly, but it's true. Same thing happens all the time in relationships. And I see it all of the time. I see it in my own relationships and I see it in other people's relationships. And it's the thing I'm speaking to the most when I uh, support my friends and their relationships. It's the thing that I speak into the most. It's the most common. And that's essentially dissolving the connection between other people's emotions and ourselves, our actions, our character, our identity. This is kind of coming out slow, but I think that you're following me and I appreciate you bumbling along with me here. So I want to tell you about something a bit juicier, how this manifested in my sex life and how it kept me from being a lover at the depth at which I've found myself to be capable of. And this, again, is based on the misconception that other people's experience has anything to do with me, that says something about me. And I think that this is a lesson mostly for men. Not entirely. Not entirely. But I've just, maybe it's just my own experience that has grown up so deeply in men and my friends that I've seen it very clearly. Now, I suppose. Didn't see it for quite some time. So, this is the idea that How do I say it? It's almost like it's almost like our sexual performance as it relates to our partner's experience is our worth. It is our identity. Right? This is a variation of the misconception that other people's experience and emotions have anything to do with us. That's not to say that an insensitive lover is an insensitive lover. That's not to say that, but it is to say that there is a healthy dissociation between other people's experience and our identities. I think that What happens all too often in the bedroom is that a man wants to be a Casanova. A man wants to love a woman into some screaming, shaking, sweating epiphany that she goes back and tells her friends She writes about it in her journal. She even tells her therapist. It is a superlative achievement. It is, air quotes, the best. Right? 
It's something that I always wanted. And it's funny because yesterday I was thinking about one of my best friends and I was thinking about how much I love him and how much he loves me and how he sees me and how he must think that I'm just the best. And I was like, whoa, look at that superlative there. Look at that designation of the best. Isn't that weird? Isn't that weird? I even want to be the best to my man friends. No wonder this insidious, I have to be the best for my sexual partners and my partners in general is like insidious in me. So there's this desire for us to be the best, which means that we have to wear this mask that we like know something or that we're like performing something that it's like kind of like one sided that like I'm going to do something to you or for you and that your experience is going to determine my identity and my worth and oh what a painful road that is it's a road that is so fraught with anxiety and rejection And the fear of rejection. And this manifests in the woman as like she shuts up about her preferences because she senses that if she says, ow, no, I don't like it there. Nope, mm, nope, too fast. Nope, stop, I'm not ready. If she says any of this stuff that is totally real for her, that you will be rejected. And by rejecting you, she's essentially squashing your connection. Because she knows that your sexual acceptance and your prowess is so directly and viscerally tied to your identity and your own self-esteem. And she's right, unfortunately, right? I had... For so long, such a fear of sexual rejection, it was like as deeply ingrained in me as this fear of abandonment. It was existential. It's like to be sexually rejected is to be killed. It's like to be sexually rejected is to be stripped of all of your clothing and possessions and to be thrown outside in the middle of the winter. Fuck. That's some pressure. Man, that's some pressure. (laughs) Fuck. And it's crazy because I look back and I now can have so much sympathy for myself. And in real time can have sympathy for myself when I am in a very vulnerable position. And sex is a crux of vulnerability and identity and of acceptance and connection. It is such a crux for that. It is our misconception that other people's experience and emotions has anything to do with us that keeps men from being sensitive and keeps women from expressing their preferences in real time. It is that 
misconception that keeps men from saying, baby, I want you to tell me just how you want it. And if it doesn't feel good, I want you to tell me right away, okay? And it is this misconception that keeps women from saying, I want it like this. That doesn't feel good. Wait, no, I'm not ready. Do this again. Keep doing this. I think that if we can dismantle this one illusion in our minds that other people's experience has anything to do with us, we can show up so much more whole. We can show up so much more free. We're not constantly tied down by this fear of abandonment. And we're not constantly tied down by this fear of looking like an idiot or being shamed or shaming ourselves. If we can just dismantle this one illusion, we can be so much more sensitive to each other and ourselves. We can validate each other's experiences. We can stop trying to fix each other ad infinitum. We can actually just listen we can actually just listen to each other it's interesting because I'm kind of on the thread of love and intimate relationships and sex in this one but the reality is that it's like this misconception pervades every corner of our human existence the most centered people you'll ever meet have dismantled this illusion and they know that your experience is yours and my experience is mine and they interact in beautiful ways but your being does not control me and my experience I get to make the meaning of it as I will I get to have the power over the story of what it means hmm I'm not exactly sure how you begin to dismantle this thing. I think that the things that come to mind are therapy, journaling, letter writing to yourself. To start to see the story. To start to see how your experience and your experience of other people's experience is affecting your identity and how you feel about yourself in any given moment. It's a long inquiry, and it's a pretty fruitful one. The intentions that I want to set for myself as I move forward with this new insight is essentially that I want to let people be more free, myself included. I want to let my Lovers be free to express their preference and their experience in real time, knowing that it is not reflecting my identity. I don't have to be afraid that a correction in bed means that I'm a terrible lover. Of course not. No, my availability to receive correction in real time is my quality as a lover. I don't want to operate from a place of fear 
in relationship. I do not want to operate from a place of fear of abandonment or fear of being shamed or embarrassed or thrown out. I don't want to operate from there. No one wants that. No one wants me to relate to them in that way either. I want to operate from a place where I feel a deep self-love and a deep self-acceptance for myself and a deep, deep, deep knowing that it's going to be okay. This is one of the things I've learned. My marriage ending with Cheetah was something that I was unconscionable. I could not have imagined that happening. After nine years, I had already settled fucking deep into the idea that this was just like going for the fucking length, right? My most recent relationship, I also had this deep security in our relationship that even though there was conflict at times, it was like good and it was functioning and it had its it had its own ability to self-correct and self-right and all these things. And inside of those beliefs that it won't end is a illusion that I... It is a blindfold that I pulled over my own eyes, failing to look at certain things. And as I look back with eyes wide open, and a very, very sensitive, forgiving feeling in myself for myself, I am working to dismantle the illusion that my Divorce means that I am a failed lover, that I'm a failed partner. That's just not what it is. It's not how it feels to me anymore. My relationship with Cheetah is very strong, and I love her so much. And I've we've rebuilt our relationship to a point where I get to tell her that. And that's so beautiful. We get to reflect all the beautiful memories we have from Machu Picchu and from Mount Bachelor and all these beautiful things and the life of our dog. And oh, that only happens when I can relinquish the idea that our failed marriage means that I'm a failure. Because if you think about all of the people that you know that have had these horrible breakups, they really don't want to forgive and they don't want to accept. I think out of a place of identity crisis that to allow yourself to dissolve the illusion that your failed relationship means that you're a failure it hurts it takes work it takes Peeling back the layers of conditioning and parenting and wounding and blah, 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 blah. It's fucking deep, man. That one is, that thread is so fucking deep in there. You got to take a knife and you got to take four sips and you got to really fucking dig around for it. And then when you start pulling on it, it really hurts. And then it's like, it fucking takes forever to pull it out. And then, ugh. <laughs> the surgical analogy might not be the most apt because I think you can tease it out like a cobra out of a basket. Honestly, if you just whistle to it in the right way.
do a little belly dance. You play that weird fucking flute clarinet thing that the Arabian dude plays and the snake comes out and you're like, oh my God, that's my identity. There it is. It's so skittish. (laughs) It's so skittish and insidious and has been driving me for quite some time, it seems. Mm. I think at the, you know, as I bumble on here, I uh, sense that I have two delineations to make here. One is that dissociating the idea that your failed relationships mean that you're a failure does not mean that you did everything right. (laughs) Just make that abundantly clear. No. It is with a deep sense of reverence, self-acceptance, and forgiveness that you can look back on your behavior with love that you can look back on your life with a loving, compassionate understanding of yourself and your path. Forgiveness and innocence are two very different things. Just because you forgive yourself of the things and you make sure that you're not making identity out of your failures does not mean that you are without fault. Of course not. Of course not. You don't have to be innocent to forgive yourself. You know? That's a beautiful thing. You don't have to be perfect. But man, it's a whole lot easier if you're nice to yourself. And by no means do I think that nice is lying to yourself about your own faults. No, no, no. Don't raise your children telling them that F's or A's. No. But... Also, don't raise them telling them the Fs mean that they're a failure. It's a delicate balance. It's a living, breathing balance. I hope this rambling, this musing is helpful. If not entertaining, if not, you can laugh at my own cringe. Maybe that's the case. But, at any rate, I appreciate you listening. If you have any questions or money, paypal.me slash airy in the air or airy in the air at gmail.com or yeah, that'll do it. Airy in the air.com. You know the place. Somehow you're here. Who knows how? Thanks for all the interweb support, which is like the clicking and the sharing and the doobly doos. I appreciate those too. Those help. I think the reviews. I don't know. Is that a thing? Do I need to promote my podcast? I don't know. I'm sure my future self will cringe at this episode and then will cringe at the idea of me promoting such a cringeworthy episode. And <laughs> such is life. Bumblebee tuna. Bumblebee tuna. Love you. <laughs>